This is what we want to be. first episode of a new and reoccurring show on the extra environmentalist we examine issues close to the heart with the same sort of extra environmentalist lens that we do with all topics on this show the amount of feedback we received from one of our previous guests steven jenkinson prompted us to have him on again when we spoke with steven we asked him if people know they're going to die or at least factor in the reality of death into their day-to-day existence justin how do you think you might live differently if you kept the fact about your death in mind all the time, do you think you'd behave differently? I think I definitely would take my life less seriously because, as we were just discussing, all of those small little things seem so much less of a problem when you put them in the broader life perspective. We thought about all the people we might talk to about death and dying, and both of us immediately thought of Stephen Jenkinson, an expert on dying that we interviewed back in episode 51. Stephen is an author, storyteller, and founder of the Orphan Wisdom School, I told Justin to really push Stephen hard with these tough questions. We'll just ease into things, is it? Okay. At what point do people take on this realization that they are going to die? I'll tell you what, and this is going to sound really odd, but I don't think I met 10 or 15 people who knew they were going to die. I met an awful lot of people who were afraid they were going to die. I met uh, lots and lots of people who had you know, other plans. Uh, I met a lot of people for whom it was a complete non-issue. Believe it or not, it never showed up in the architecture. Now, bearing in mind that all the people I was working with in the period I'm talking to you now had already been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Ask them if they were going to die. Many of them would have answered no. So this is very peculiar. I was teaching a group of palliative care uh, workers, and in the, included in there was, uh, were physicians, and 10 or 15 minutes into my tirade, this guy objected pretty vehemently, and he said, you're making a big deal about nothing because everybody knows they're going to die. You see, it's the most obvious thing in the world to say it. So I said to him, um, okay, well, let's, let's put it to a vote. We have a room full of people here. All in favor of the proposition that everybody knows they're going to die, please raise your hand. Believe me when I tell you there was hesitation for a minute, mainly because nobody was sure what I was going to do or say. And they had to work with this guy the next day because it was kind of a small town situation. So eventually they all voted with him. So he's looking at me like, you satisfied now? No, I wasn't quite. So I said, um, so far you're batting a thousand. Um, it's just one more thing and this should be the easy part. You're an evidence-based practitioner at being a physician. So um, if you could give me some evidence. And he said, for what? I said, well, evidence for this really self-evident thing that you've just said to me, that everybody knows they're going to die. Just a little proof, a little sign. Give me some indication that what you see out there every day tells you that people know. And he kind of spluttered after a second. He said, well, this is ridiculous, he said. Everybody's going to die. I said, well, you know, to a certain extent, I agree with you there, but that's not what you said. You didn't say everybody's going to die. You said everybody knows. And that's what I'm asking you to give me some sign of. And he honestly couldn't do it. 
And here's why. Let's make a parallel with, say, global warming to take a real handy example. 15 or 20 years ago, did people know the climate was changing, the atmosphere was failing, you know, did people know that in quotation marks? Uh, some people were afraid of it, some people were disputing it, for many people it was a non-issue, but very, very few people knew it, meaning you should be able to trace how people live their lives. Uh, you should be able to trace in that living some sign that these things are known. Surely that's what known means. It means you can see it. It means it has, it has an ongoing consequence that's discernible and can be traceable back to these known things. When it comes to dying, you can't make the same claim. You know, I've, I've worked in North America for a long time, and I still haven't seen much of a sign that people know they're going to die. And I'll tell you this, it's a radical departure to get people from talking in, in the abstract and the future tense about knowing they're going to die to some present tense. I know I'm dying. I mean, when it's the case that they are. That is like turning the Titanic, you know, on, on a 180 degree spin. It's virtually undoable. Obviously, what I'm trying to do is say to you that you're, you, the first proposition you make, at least I never saw it. I, I don't see that people know they're going to die. It's conjecture. Yeah, it's motivating, all right. It motivates people, particularly when there's a possibility in the air that either they or someone's close to them may be dying, could be dying, appears to be dying, or certainly is dying. The motivation is very strongly to flee, to get away from that, to, to assure the person, reassure the person, support the person, uh, swamp them with positive talk and positive imagery and so on. The idea being that somehow, with, with enough of that, what will change the outcome? To what? To living forever? What it come down to for me always was, dying was never looked upon by, by the, at least the vast majority of people as being the legitimate outcome of having been born. It was always a rip-off. It was always the wrong thing at the wrong time. It was always a punishment for you know, too many hamburgers or, or too much stress. Or... So in other words, and I'll turn it over to you now, <laughs> that... Uh, it is one of the most relentless deal breakers, the idea of dying. The deal people make with their lives is predicated on the idea that they'll die when they want to, on their own, in their own time, according to their own agenda. And it's part of the North Americans' almost uh, unquenchable fixation on being in control and being in charge. So you think that people don't even realize, they don't want to accept that fact in their brain that, you know, 100 years max and you're done. Yeah. But, you know, just let's say on the, on the outside of that, 100 years max, how can, they, how can they not see that? They see people around them, like, you know, their grandparents, their parents, all passing away. And as yeah, they get older, it gets to be something that you can't really ignore. Of course you can ignore it. If you couldn't ignore it, you and I wouldn't be talking about it. You wouldn't be doing a show about it. This would be one of the most obvious things that you couldn't get any traction for people being interested in this kind of discussion. The very fact that you and I are talking about it, that you know and I know that this is a mandatory discussion that uh, remains a fugitive proposition for most people in North America, that's all the sign we need. How can people ignore it? The whole industry, the whole cultural industry of being a North American 
absolutely ignores it. I mean, the idea that you are obliged to live with the consequences of your actions, that is an extremely tough sell. So how are you possibly going to get those people to proceed as if the omnipresence of their dying should somehow deepen and ennoble their days and all of their endeavors and so on? How are you going to sell that idea to people for whom dying is some kind of grotesque visitation of bad karma or bad planning? You can't sell it. Whenever I tried to sell dying well to somebody, I could never sell it on the basis that it was good for them. The closest I could come was to ask people to die well for the sake of someone they loved who was going to outlive them. That's as close as I could get, man. Specifically in North America, we have this problem with obsession over youth and the kinds of plastic surgery and body things that people do to try to remain as if they appear young because of this fear of death, perhaps. I wanted to get your idea on where you think that that obsession with youth comes from. And we see it in so many different ways playing out in, in popular culture, but where do you kind of see it originating? Well, when I was working in the death trade, about a third of the people that I was working with who were dying were younger than I was at any given time. So first of all, dying's not geriatrics, right? It's not something that happens to old people, not, not even close. The death of young people is something we don't know a lot about. There's not a lot of press about it. So it's kind of involuntarily viewed like an old person's affliction. That's the first thing. And then this fixation on youth, that's kind of a secondary manifestation of the thing. I think it's really come back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is the fixation on youth or the inner child, I mean, he go on and on, is one of the wrinkles in the cloth that says, I'm a fully entitled person and the world is here for me to get my needs met, for my purposes to be worked out. You know, if I say it that nakedly, a lot of people listening right now say, well, I don't feel that way. I, I like trees and you may not feel that way, but if you're willing to consider how you make most of your decisions, you know, what you hold dear, what you're willing to forego, you see the sense of entitlement amongst North Americans is extremely strong. And it comes from childhood that the fascination with youth is a consequence of our complete reluctance to end childhood formally, ceremonially, and explicitly. And when you, when you have that circumstance, you have 50 and 60 year old adolescents proliferating all over the place. And they're the guys who are by and large in charge of the economy and, and so on. I see that entitlement all the time when I talk to people and they bring their kind of assumptions about the world and, and what the world gives them for, you know, what they put into it or their work. And I see a lot of people who sacrifice their lives in things that they don't want to do. And then that sense of entitlement grows because they feel that they've wasted so much of their life. It seems like around me, I, I see a lot of especially middle-aged men feeling this where they're coming at their life and seeing it perhaps in the first time realizing that they've been emotionally unhappy for so long, it reinforces the entitlement. That's one particular case, but the entitlement really is, is rampant. How do you deal with the entitlement and move beyond it? Well, I'll tell you how I'm trying to. I have a surprising number of young people 
who seek me out in some fashion or other. Sometimes they literally appear in my lane up to the farmhouse here. More often than not, they'll send me emails from, you know, from all over the English-speaking world and sometimes beyond that. They're kind of intuitively, they figure I'm up to something that is otherwise seems to be completely missing in action in their lives. You know, if they join my school, let's say, one of the things they find to their considerable chagrin is that I hold them to a a standard of deep work. That's the word I use. I don't talk about inspiration. I sure don't talk about growth. I don't talk about coping and hoping and when all else fails, doping. I talk about work. I don't mean manual labor necessarily, but work, the way I mean it, is the thing that we're least inclined to do. If people want to learn from me, that's what I hold them to. And I'm growing more and more certain that without that willingness to labor and to learn, then the thing you're asking me about, it will continue to flourish. It'll continue to look like normal life. But this very sense of entitlement is how North Americans are recognizable all over the world. I don't say it's unique to us, but it's deeply characteristic of us. And it really shows up when we're traveling elsewhere in places where people have learned young that they might be there to serve the world, not to be served by it. And in that sense, we might be in the minority, our sense of entitlement. So I wanted to go back to a little bit of what you were saying about trading that get up and go for wisdom. If people could take a pill where they could stay 25, 28, 30 years old their whole lives, what do you think that they'd be missing out on? What do you think that they'd be trading for that, the body not breaking down, for the limbs not getting old? What would they be missing? At some level, they'd never know. Making a deal like that is fueled by a really inarticulate hatred, not of age. It's a hatred of limitation. That's North American in a nutshell, is that I should be able to plan and technologicalize my way out of every circumstance I might find myself in. I think if people were make that terrible deal with the devil, the emphasis I'd like to put on is not what they'd miss, but rather what the people around them would miss as a consequence of them not aging. And what we would all miss is what many of us are missing already as we're speaking tonight, which is the presence of real, field-tested, substantial elders in our midst. We have a lot of old people, that's for sure. We don't have many elders because of that. We seem to think that elderhood is a consequence of what your birth certificate says or a consequence of not having died yet. The end of childhood is not inevitable, but something actually has to happen to end that sense of entitlement and so on. I'd say the same thing about elderhood, that being an elder is not an inevitable consequence of not having died. It takes an extraordinary number of things to come your way, and many of them you have to, in a very honorable fashion, bow to. And somewhere in there you become vaguely trustworthy to the people around you by virtue of you being willing for life to have its way with you. Well, if you remain 25 or 30, nobody will ever see that in their midst. Then the idea of elderhood at all becomes a rumor. It's not much more than that today, but it would be a terrible calamity if people found a way to to circumvent age, because not so much for their own sake, which of course is a childish orientation, but for the sake of everyone around them who needs the presence of elders to legitimize growing old themselves. 
to give them something to live up to. One shining, living human example. That's what elders are in part supposed to be. It would be a tremendous, uh, what a nightmare that question is. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I'd never really considered that before, but, but anyway, that's my take on it. You mentioned limits and how especially this element of entitlement in North American culture has such a difficulty with limits, such as a limit to your days on this planet as a particular ego and, and identity. How do you think people can take those first steps to dealing with limits? I don't see it happening much, to be honest with you. North Americans are insulted by limitation. The best thing I can point to is what I saw in my working life so often, which is when people were dying, this is regardless of their age, by the way, when people were dying, they were insulted by dying. Can you imagine of all the reactions you could have, the idea that somehow it's beneath you not to have a vote in these matters? Well, where do we learn how to be that way with respect to our own dying? And the answer is, incrementally, we have 50 opportunities a day to make deep peace with what kind of limitations there are in life. And we refuse it because we like to keep our options open. And let's not forget, you know, I agree with you at some level that these limitations are, quote, staring us in the face. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily seen as intractable limits. As long as you have the, the technology mania that we have, there's always a plan B. I mean, that's what the guys in R&D are in. They're in plan B generation. Nobody's planning on less. That's the deep truth of it. Growth, especially the psychological kind, remains the principal addiction of North America. The idea of growth. We've come up with some nightmarish scenarios with respect to the growth of suburbs. At least they're nightmarish to me. But they're not getting any smaller. And I don't see anybody putting any limits on those things. We're just not willing to say, look, we have too many people and we have to start proceeding accordingly. <laughs> you just don't see it happen, man. Your question is, is still hypothetical, sadly enough. It shouldn't be, but it is. The good news, if there is such a thing in this dark uh, inquiry of ours here right now, is that the world remains a faithful deliverer of the opportunity to learn. Let's change the word from limit. Let's say to learn how our life can be contained in something that's bigger than our personal lives. That time itself contain our life in some way and give it shape and purpose. Those limits are actually the things that whisper meaning to us about what it means to have been born and to live up to a certain age and to see the things that you've seen and married or not and children or not and trying to find meaningful work that doesn't hurt other people or the world and so on. These things are not limitations the way we were talking a second ago. They're the, the shape that your life actually has by which it can become recognizable to you. If you change the language, you notice the feeling tone about the discussion changes from limit to meaning. I'm interested to know, you know, you've worked with the death industry for a long while yeah. and you working on a farm, you deal with life and death a lot. I'm interested to know what the draw is for you working in the death trade. What, what do you personally get out of it? Well, I got a chance to learn something I wasn't seeking and probably left to my own choice, 
I probably wouldn't have chosen to learn it. I went into the death trade thinking that my job was to help people die. But I realized fairly early on that I was completely wrong about that. That you can only help people to die who understand themselves to be dying. You can only help people die when dying is their goal as well. I don't think I had five people in 500 who had as the goal of their dying time to die. They had all kinds of other goals. This might sound crazy to you, crazy talk, I don't know. But I, I'm telling you, I mean it deeply and sadly, that most people spent their dying time, that means the time from when they were diagnosed, and they could proceed with certainty in relative terms how long their life was likely to last and so on. Most of those people spent their dying time not dying. And you might think, what the hell does that mean? How could they be diagnosed and at the same time not dying? Well, the answer is that diagnosis is a piece of information. It doesn't necessarily determine anything about how you see, what you think about, how you proceed through your days, what you take seriously, what you don't. I mean, one of the most obvious examples is when people, quote, found out they were dying, their attachment to their stuff actually deepened for quite a while. And then you have this really obnoxious film that came out maybe six or eight years ago, and it was called Bucket List. Honestly, to me, it was an obscene movie. And I'll tell you why. Because it used the idea of a terminal diagnosis as some kind of switch that instantly and inevitably and automatically turned people towards a life that defied limits. Here we go again, right? It's the same thing. So these guys are climbing mountains, and I don't remember what, what all they did. And I kept referring to it in the teaching that I was doing at the time. I said, now there's a film out there. It's called Bucket List, but it really, I'm thinking it would have been better called something that rhymes with Bucket List. Unfortunately, it didn't get called that, but it should have, because that movie was about flipping the bird to dying. It wasn't about dying well. It was about making as if dying is not something to be obeyed, but something to be defied. Do you hear the addiction to limitless life? It's still there, you see. So I wanted to follow up there for a little bit about the medical industry. I work a lot with in the, in the hospitals here in the, in the Triangle. And the amount of resources that are expanded trying to keep people alive is incredible. The amount of work that the doctors put into a person. I, I work in, in the catheterization laboratories where they stick wires into people's hearts and implant new valves into their hearts. And I mean, it's an incredibly technologically heavy process. I want you to expand on our medical system, where our priorities are in the medical system. Where should they be? You'd reasonably expect that the medical system that pertains in North America would be a faithful child of the culture that creates it and funds it and subsidizes it and legislates it into existence and so on. And you'd be absolutely right to find out that one follows the other. Medical technology leads very little. What I found in the trade is that the technology is there for the same reason that the feel-good bromides and the meditation practices, and all, they're all there for the same reason, which is there should be something we can do about dying that doesn't submit itself to dying. I mean, medical technology is a kind of religion, and as a religion, it has a kind of creed, 
and you could put the creed in six or eight words, it goes something like this. If you can, you should. That's the creed of medical technology. So the idea of withholding the technology, of not using any of it, I never heard that option discussed. Yes, there comes time when people talk about withdrawing some of the technology. But can you imagine being part of a family that was approached four months ago by the high-tech medical staff to allow them to do a kind of certainly an invasive procedure to their loved one in the name of either saving their life or extending their life or, or adding quality to their life. And four or six or eight months later, that same team coming back to the family and saying, we're asking your permission now to withdraw that technology because in our view, it's outlived its usefulness and we should, really wouldn't, shouldn't be asking your, your loved one to continue to live uh, as they're being obliged to do now by that technology. Well, that nightmare scenario happens with some considerable frequency. Why is that? Answer is because the, the real option of not using the technology is viewed most by most of us as either reckless or irresponsible, malpractice, deeply unprofessional, or obscene. You see, it's a continuum that moves in that direction. I've yet to hear people seriously challenge the use of the technology, period, as the leading edge of our thinking. You could think of it another way and say, when it's your time to die, what should the technology be for? Shouldn't our use of the technology change as a consequence of being willing to know that the person in question is dying? Shouldn't the dying change everything? Not the technology, the dying. So it doesn't. And as a consequence, we, we've never had a healthcare system in North America, it seems to me. We've always had a disease management system. Health is not the preoccupation of this technology, not even the reconstitution of health. It's disease management, and it'll always be that until we are willing to allow the stages of life, the circumstances of life, to dictate the use of the technology, not the other way around. We were discussing earlier how a lot of youth have been seeking you out even beyond the English-speaking world. And I'm wondering what it is about their experience of their culture that is leading them to you. When you're talking to them and asking them questions about you know, how they found you or why they sought you out, what is their experience like that is causing them to seek the kinds of things that you're talking about? You know, a lot of kids come to me. I, I shouldn't say kids. I mean, to me, they're young folks, let's say under 30. They're angry men. Okay, they're not upset. Okay, they're not, they're not disillusioned. That barely begins to approach it. A lot of these folks are supremely hostile towards most people my age, in principle, for the abject failure that we've made of being elders and of preparing to hand on a world that is in some kind of sane condition that's worth handing on, if I could put it that way. I can't even imagine what it's like, frankly, to look at the next 40 years of your life and see nothing compound mayhem, no matter where you look. That's what a lot of younger people are coming to me with. What they see and what, what I'm talking about 
you know, really you'd have to make a show and have them on. But my guess would be something like this. You know, it's not hard now through the internet and YouTube and everything else to get these glimpses that there are other people in other places who live in ways that look sane, that look sustainable, that look life-loving, that look earth-loving, and all the rest and all the rest. And then you walk outside your door, and there are people doing good things, don't get me wrong, but the possibilities of feeling that your life could amount to a revolution, that the living of your life could have a consequence that is discernible and it's within your power. I don't hear that. I don't hear that conviction. I don't see it. It's one of the things I'm trying to revive in people. Not the idea of personal power. Not at all. Instead, it's the idea that you were born to a certain purpose. I don't pretend to know what everyone's purpose is, but I'm fairly certain that people are born to a particular purpose. If you're born into a ramshackle time such as our time is now, then it, it must stand to follow that this time needs someone with the, your approximate shape, size, predisposition, capabilities, and the rest. And you must spend the first half of your life living as if you were born to a certain purpose and pursuing it deeply and methodically and emphatically. Now at a certain point, you come to the second half of your life. No one tells you you're there. And it's not easy to recognize, but it can be recognizable because the project changes. Whether or not you were successful at the first half of your life and that particular project, the second half of your life has the project of finding with whom you are to live your life's purpose. In other words, it's community, it's village. And all of my work is, is village making, or at least village imagining. Let's put it that way. To give people the appetite for such a thing and an understanding of the terrific labor that is going to be necessary for us to achieve any kind of antidote to the solitary, nuclear, entitled, atomic, and deeply uninspired life that waits for most people now, sadly. But things can be done about it. Uh, otherwise, you and I wouldn't be talking. You wouldn't have your show. And I would stick to farming. I'm wondering if you see it as a possibility for our culture to mature as opposed to completely dissolving and falling apart in recognizing these failures of its story and narrative about what it means to be human and, and creating this solitary existence that leads to so much personal suffering. Well, that's a good question, but uh, maybe we shouldn't be too quick to force ourselves to choose between maturing and having things collapse. If you think about it on the level of a personally lived life, what does your adolescence represent but at least potentially the collapse of your childhood? Where a lot of the sense of, you know, that the world revolves around you slowly be challenged and replaced by an understanding that you are a citizen, that you're not forever on the tit of the world, you see. And then what, what should be your 20s and 30s, but the collapse of your adolescence? And, you know, we could sort of keep going. You could say that maturity requires a certain devastation of the period of life that you've just begun to grow accustomed to. And then to realize it's not supposed to last that long. You know, these phases of a person's individual life. 
So if you take that understanding, apply it to certain possibilities in the culture, we might say that North America is quintessentially an adolescent proposition uh, inflicted on the world. And uh, alas, we have tremendous capacity technologically and monetarily to act on our adolescent impulses and insistences. Maybe there's something about our culture that could collapse in such a way to both force and allow a kind of maturity to appear. I'm not sure that many of us are going to willingly enter into a, a time like that, either personally at a cultural level. Maybe we can't wait for willingness. Maybe it has to be conjured and invoked in some fashion. That's what's required. I think that dying well as a personal moral obligation has to come before any readiness to die comes. You could say it the reverse and say any readiness for personal dying comes from being asked to do so. It doesn't precede it. You could say the same thing, I think, about our culture now. There's recently been an article in the news I was reading. It said that it has a, there's a drug that's being developed that allows a prisoner to serve a thousand-year prison sentence in about eight and a half hours. It's not a new idea. Uh, science fiction writers have been talking about this for a long time. But how do you think that this might increase the amount of perceived life expectancy and change the way we live our lives? You know, if we could live a thousand years in an 8.5-hour time block, what do you think that would do to life expectancy and how would that change the way that people understand death and, and life itself? I don't know if it's hypothetical. Certainly, people that you would ancestrally call them, you know, medicine men and medicine women or shamans and so on. I mean, obviously, these people have been living in every era of human history, basically in every culture. They show up generation after generation. And one of their signature features is they have a consequence of sort of being able to bend time by how they conduct themselves, by certain things that they say or don't say and, and so forth. It's, in other words, it's not fiction, what you're asking me about. It's certainly been there. And yeah, sometimes it's aided and abetted by psychotropic drugs and, and plants and so forth. But I'm not sure that those things are really that, that necessary for it. So then you'd ask yourself, in all cultures where you have people who are kind of time mechanics, if that's a good way of saying it, what's the consequence for the culture of having these kind of people in their midst? Ironically... I think it more emphatically plants that culture deeply in the present moment. It basically neutralizes any thoughts they have about, quote, the future. But you could say it differently, not about the future. For example, uh, it, would, it would remove the necessi any necessity for hopefulness, meaning hope has this terrible function of being chronically future-oriented. Nobody ever hopes for what they have or hopes to be what they are, or hopes to live where they're living, it hopes to have lived as long as they have now lived up to. Hope is chronically future-oriented, and as such, hope is never satisfied with the current situation, with, with the present moment. It's deeply reluctant to live in the present at all. These kinds of people in our midst take away our hopefulness and don't replace it with hopelessness. They replace it with the capacity to live free of hope, absolutely planted in the present moment, and being willing to do so 
and live in such a way as if three or four or five generations from now, their own heirs will somehow be able to benefit from the fact that they were in the world willing to live in this fashion. And man, we could sure learn something right now from those people. Wouldn't it be something if we decided to live as if the people not yet born, not yet imagined, need us to proceed more responsibly for the sake of the world that we'll never live to see, we'll never benefit from, but somehow will be the only thing that we have to pass on to them. Well, that's, that's what I'm working towards. I, I wrote a book, just finished it, called Die Wise, where I'm making the case for everything we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. A lot of people are clamoring to look at it. I'd like to believe it might have some consequence. God only knows. But we have to go beyond doing what we can. Maybe our talk today has been some way of articulating what that could look like. The first thing that will piss you off undoubtedly is that all of us are in fact going to die in the 21st century. There will be no exceptions to that. There are apparently about one in eight of you who think you're immortal on surveys, but unfortunately that isn't, this isn't going to happen. While I give this talk in the next 10 minutes, 100 million of my cells will die. And over the course of today, 2,000 of my brain cells will die and never come back. Anyway, the second thing I want to say about dying in the 21st century, apart from it's going to happen to everybody, is it's shaping up to be a bit of a train wreck unless we do something to try and reclaim this process from the rather inexorable trajectory that it's currently on. Think about reading a good book or eating a delicious cake. These may be great pleasures, but one of the things that makes them pleasures is that they come to an end. A book that went on and on forever and a cake that you never stopped eating would both soon lose their appeal. Death is a natural part of life. It makes sense for us to try not to be afraid of this, but instead to come to terms with it. Then we can focus on finding meaning and purpose in the here and now, making the most of the one life we know we have and helping others to do the same, choosing good over evil without the expectation of reward in some other place. You're listening to episode number 80 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with hospice nurse Meg Smith. It's difficult to mention death without thinking about the aging process. Caring for our elders has become a huge point of concern, especially as the baby boom generation nears retirement age. How will the 20 and 30-somethings of today, the millennial generation, care for the enormous populations of aging Americans? What's even more concerning is the prevalence of dementia among the elderly. Links between stress and depression seems to correlate directly to this epidemic that affects a huge part of the elderly population. We spoke with hospice nurse Meg Smith and asked her about aging in the modern world. What are some of the biggest challenges facing our elderly today? Really one of the biggest challenges is dementia. 
and the epidemic of dementia, Alzheimer's type dementia in particular. Fully 50% of people over the age of 85 have some kind of mild cognitive impairment or you know, up to a full-blown, pretty profound dementia. You said 50%? 50%. That is huge. It's, it's huge. People over the age of 65, it's something like 15%, or it's a, still a pretty big number. As medical care improves to help keep our bodies healthy, these older adults, you know, have had fairly healthy adulthood, and their bodies are often much stronger than their brains are, than their minds are, and they can sometimes live with dementia for. 20 years or more. In the latter stages of dementia, a person becomes basically incapacitated, unable to do anything for themselves. So there's a huge need for that full amount of physical care for the older adult. The rate is, is becoming greater, uh, partly because people are living longer. Mm. It's the same with cancer. The rate of cancer is much higher because as people live longer, the longer you live, the greater your chances are of getting cancer. The longer you live, the greater your chances are of getting Alzheimer's. You talked about the baby boomers coming up, and that's a huge amount of, of folks who are getting to be into their later 60s right now and are going to be having access to Medicare, going to be then be moving into places that are independent living. And these are folks who have a large amount of money and are used to a very high standard of living. Could you talk a little bit about what that picture is going to look like, how that's going to affect our current system and how it's going to force our system to change? It's definitely going to force the system to change because baby boomers are seeing the um, setting that their own parents are in and they are not going to accept that kind of setting for themselves. I'm actually surprised that there hasn't been sort of more change in that direction. And interestingly, in the years that I've been doing this, the last 12 years that I've been doing geriatric care management, I find that the quality of the care and even the physical settings of many of the facilities, assisted living facilities, nursing homes, are becoming sort of poorer in quality. And I think a lot of it is you know, because of that very reason that the administrators are, are concerned about the money and the nurses are concerned about all the rules and regulations and the aides are working their tails off to get done everything that needs to be done and aren't getting respected. It seems to me that the baby boomers would be a little more active in figuring out other alternatives. I've been in conversations where there have been groups thinking about, you know, not just community for older adults, but multi-generational communities that are built around care providing, being, you know, adapted within the multi-generational communities. The more we talk about uncomfortable subjects, the easier it becomes. And I think it is just something that needs to happen gradually. A colleague just gave me a, um, a deck of cards, and I haven't opened it up yet, but she has done it for herself. And it's, it's sort of like a card game, but all of the car on the cards are written 
things that would have to do with how you would want your care to be at the end of your life. Do you want to die at home? Do you want to die free of pain? Do you want to die with family at your side? You know, or age with, you know, not necessarily die with, mm -hmm. but you know, the same thing for the aging process. She said when she did it, she was really, she was surprised by some of the things because I think it's like the way it's set up is sort of a game that you have to whittle down to five cards. She always thought she would want to be home, die in her own home, but she realized that it wasn't as important as having family nearby and being free of pain mm -hmm. and you know whatever the few other cards were. So things like that that will make having that conversation easier I think are great. So that sounds like to me that taking ownership of your death is a very scary thing for many people. And it's a very fearful thing. It's surrounded by fear in, in many ways for people. Do you find that as the normal reaction to when you talk about death with your clients? Is, is that a fear? It's interesting. I, I wouldn't really say that. It's, it's almost more a sense of distaste. It's, this is just not something that you know, I want to talk about. And it's not so much that they don't want to think about it, because I think, especially as one ages, one begins to think more about their mortality. I think the thought of one's own body actually halting, no more heartbeat, no more breathing, no more cells moving around, it's, it's a daunting thought. And I think people don't really want to think about that piece. I think that for some people, it's not just the physical, it's also the spiritual. But often the people who, who are more spiritual tend to be more willing to talk about death because they have a belief in, in something beyond. So in that same kind of idea about taking ownership about death, the choosing of where and when you want to die has been important to people forever. Since humans have been around, that's been something that has been on, on their minds. Is there any thoughts that you have around assisted suicide or people choosing their own time and place of their death? I think as a nurse and as a former hospice nurse for many years, I have seen people have great relief and very good comfort care measures in their dying months or days or hours, depending on you know, how their disease process progresses. So my personal feeling is that I think the focus ought to be on comfort and on respecting the life that's still there rather than taking that, that life away. Although there are cases where in order to keep somebody comfortable, maybe with morphine or you know, other medications, that that may in, in some sense hasten their death and in other times you might even see it prolonging they become into a sort of a restful phase once they're sedated personally i don't feel like assisted suicide is a something that i would be interested in doing i would certainly be open to having conversations with clients about it i'm sure i've had clients say things like you know i just want to die i just want to go i'm ready to go and some you know, who still have several years ahead of them and some who, who realize that they're in the process of dying. Medical advances are allowing people to live so much longer these days. What do we do with these people and how do we give care to these folks? 
Do you think that advances in medical care are changing how we relate to death? You know, I think there have been some changes, you know, especially with the hospice movement, which started like in the 1970s in England, and then, you know, fairly quickly came to the United States. And it has been a, a great avenue for people to really sit down with the person who may be dying or is dying and talk about their life their death, you know, what they want to leave as a, you know, a legacy or, or even just to be able to slow down things, having these extra caregivers in when someone is under the hospice benefit. In a lot of ways, they can have a special, a more special family time. So I think in, in that way, people have opened up much more to talk about death and to be willing to experience the death of a loved one in in, even in their own home. On the other hand, with the advances in medical care and physicians still being trained to sort of cure at all costs or attempt to cure at all costs, it's being left behind in the acute you know, hospital, the critical care settings, even geriatricians, but certainly primary care doctors who have many, many older adult clients, many clients over the age of 70, 80. They don't even think about asking the older adult what, what are their wishes if something were to happen, if they were to stop breathing or if their heart were to stop. In the state of North Carolina, there's a document that the doctor can sign after talking with their patient, um, would say, I don't want to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation. I don't want to have somebody pounding on my chest and you know especially if somebody has osteoporosis they're probably guaranteed to have at least one broken rib after that um, you know the thought of having electrocardiac shock is you know it's pretty severe but doctors don't think to present it to an older adult as an option that they have and that as something really important for them to talk about and there is a lot more information on the legal end, a lot more people now, older adults in particular, have been encouraged to do a healthcare power of attorney and living will. And the living will may state that they wouldn't want to have any excessive measures or heroic measures, which some people might think would be CPR. But you can't show a living will to an EMS person and say, see, they don't want to have chest compressions. You have to, in the state of North Carolina, you have to have that particular bright yellow form mm -hmm. that shows EMS to stop and not do resuscitation. Death is swept under the carpet in our culture, in the hospital. They try to keep you alive as long as possible in utter desperation. They won't tell you that you're going to die. They, uh, when their relatives have to be informed that it's a hopeless case, they say, don't tell this to the patient. And all the relatives come around with hollow grins and say, well, you'll be all right in about a month, and then we'll go and have a holiday somewhere and sit by the sea and... Uh, listen to the birds and whatnot. And the dying person knows that this is mockery. 
We never heard of anyone who didn't have to meet with that. We say in Buddhism, as there's three ways to approach that. One which is like a deer which is trapped in a net. It's just terribly afraid of that. Well, that's when we didn't make what is necessary to have a, a meaningful life. And then we were scared of that. We didn't think of that. And then when it approaches, then we feel panic. Second one is to be like a peasant that took care of its fields with great care, that took out the wheat, and then so the crop comes and whatever happens, so no regret. And then if you, have an, you have become familiar with that, with time, and you have lived a life that is a fulfilled life, then a good death is the culminating point of a good life. So almost like joy, not of dying, the joy that you did the best you could in this life, you serve others, you find a sense of fulfillment in your own life, so you can be at peace, no problem. If the culture is dying, then what is asked of you? And the only way you can talk about that is to say, well, what if it's your mom then, or your dad? If your dad's dying, what do you do? Do you get as far away as, you, as possible as you can from it, so that, quote, you don't die? But you will die. So making distance from your dying father is not going to help you. Right? It's not going to save you from anything. It's just going to make you dumber longer. So then, when, if your dad's dying, what's asked of you is that you approach. You're terrified. You're enormously distraught. You don't know what to say or do. And still, you must make your feet walk towards his deathbed or her deathbed. And that's the obligation that we have if the culture itself is dying. Our job is to be a faithful witness to what's happening. So first order of business is don't turn your head and don't blink. Because someday, somebody much younger than you is going to need to know what it looked like in the early days when things started to turn real bad and it was irreversible. They've got to get it from somewhere, man. They're not going to get it from newspapers. They're not going to get it from Fox News. You know that, and I know it too. But they might be able to believe someone in whose eye they can look while the story's being told. And maybe at some level, that's why you guys are doing these programs that you're doing. It's certainly one of the reasons I agreed to be on here with you. to episode number 80 of The Extra Environmentalist. And today, we're exploring our cultural notions of death with Caitlin Dowdy, founder of The Order of the Good Death. Stephen really got us thinking about the spiritual side of dying. And so we wanted to dig deeper in order to do that, we decided to look into how people have been dealing with death historically. So we spoke with roving death theorist Caitlin Dowdy, a Los Angeles-based mortician and founder of the Order of the Good Death. She spoke with us a bit more about the mechanics and rituals associated with dying. Has working as mortician and working at a crematorium influenced how you think about your own death? Oh, yeah, hugely. It really influences everything that I do now and everything that I see is through and how people behave and how culture 
works and everything I see through the lens of death. When you spend that much time around other dead bodies, it really is a memento mori, which is a reminder of your own death and a reminder that you too will die. So you're kind of constantly being reflected back the knowledge that you are this fallible creature who is going to die. And, and I think that's a really good way to live. I'm sure that there are other people who would disagree with me. But I think that that's another reason that I'm so attracted to the theory and the art of the late Middle Ages, because they were always showing corpses in states of decay and the dance of death and all of these tombs that had decaying bodies. And you were sort of constantly exposed to this idea that you are a fallible, temporary creature. And I think that's really valuable. From your experience working with so many deaths, how do you think that people should approach their own personal deaths? How should they talk to their family about what their wishes are? When your grandmother is close to dying. What's the best way to approach it? Just head on straight into it or be sensitive to their wishes or what, what do you suggest? Uh, yeah, certainly be sensitive, but also be willing to keep trying. And that's the biggest thing. If you feel really comfortable and you really want to talk about death and you want to have that conversation, be prepared to be rebuffed the first couple of times because there's such a stronghold that death denial has that your grandmother might not want to talk about it. My parents still don't want to talk about it. I'm still chipping away at them after years and years and years. So you really have to have the strength in yourself to know that it is a good idea to talk about death and that for most people, once you chip away at it a little bit, they, they will come back to you and they will open the conversation and they will want to talk about it more. But you just have to be really, really firm in its importance. And because if you let the rejection get to you right away, you'll just shut down and nobody will talk about it. Caitlin, how did you become a mortician? You have such an interesting perspective on death, and it seems you've spent so much time thinking about it. Have you always been interested in death? How did you transition through your training into being a mortician? In college, I was a medieval history major, which kind of translates to medieval death major. <laughs> that was my interest in death rituals. My primary interest has always been how does death work in different cultures? How does how we treat death influence the culture as a whole? After college, I was a little unsure about what direction I was going to go, and I decided to try to apply to crematories because I thought that it would give me a real perspective into the people who are actually working with death on the ground level and in the trenches with real bodies and real grief. So I finally did get a job, and I spent my first year in the industry working at a crematory as a crematory operator, which means I cremated, burned the bodies. That really gave me an intense wake-up call as to a lot of the realities of working in death and what death in our country looked like. Really from that point, I decided to become a mortician because I think it gives me a real interesting perspective. But really what I do now and ultimately want to do is just continue to be a roving death theorist of sorts that is allowed to explore all of these different topics and try and bring them together with the practical experience I have to translate it for a wider audience. What would a culture that is more comfortable with death look like? What things would we be doing as individuals or together to work on this relationship with death? If you think about people who are culture makers, like politicians or actors or people who are public figures, or just people living normal lives, most people don't know that death is the thing that's driving them. I'm a big acolyte of the gentleman named Ernest Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death. His point is that death is where we're coming from. Death is the reason that we achieve. Death is the reason that we take the actions that we do, that we build buildings, that we start wars, that we have families. And you'd be surprised at how many people just don't know that, how many people are completely cut off to that. So having a culture that's much more death accepting and death aware 
allows us to understand where behavior is coming from in a much more profound way. So when we're having these conversations about, well, why is this person acting this way? Why did they take this action? Why did they do that? The answer is probably has something to do with their relationship with death. So it doesn't mean that it would automatically be this utopia if everyone was okay with death. It just means that everyone would be a lot more self-aware. I saw a film a while ago called Target, and it was a Russian film. Basically, in the movie, there's a cure to death. Something happens where this group of people are immune to death and dying, and they have to go back into the world with a lot of people who are dying. It actually destroys their lives becoming immortal because, as you're talking about, it removes that deeper meaning to their life because then all of their relationships dissolve and all of these other things happen. There's so much of a drive in especially the Silicon Valley world and the kind of techno-utopian world to do away with that, to become immortal. How do you think people would act differently if they actually were immortal? The drive towards immortality is always so funny to me because it's, I think you're absolutely right, it it ruins people's lives living longer in that way. One of the most beautiful things about life is the boundaries that death sets up, is the time limit and is the unsure time limit that we have. And that's what drives us to achieve and drives us to create. So if you take that away, all of a sudden it's this really sort of this malaise settles over everything. Another crucial part of it is that the Silicon Valley world and the people who are fighting for life extension are in general folks of real privilege. It's not as surprising that people of real privilege would want to extend their privilege indefinitely, whereas the people that we're really worried about are the increasing elderly population, especially women of color, frankly, who are over 85 and don't have the health care, don't have the people to take care of them, have a really miserable end of life experience. And to ignore that population in favor of, but I would like to live forever, just seems really, really kind of awful to me. I've thought a lot about living for a longer time or maybe even just to like 500. What kind of perspective do you think that would give people? We think about the perspective and how the short human perspectives are right now. We we think about what's happening tomorrow maybe or what's for dinner or what I'm going to do for lunch today. But we don't think about our great-great-grandchildren in that way because the fact that human lifetimes are so short. Do you think that if that time limit was increased, we would have different kind of perspectives on our lives? What you just said is probably, if done entirely right, would be the best outcome of it, is that people thinking, especially environmentally, beyond themselves and what happens. But another issue is that presumably people would still die very young. Presumably there would still be accidents, there would still be disease. We wouldn't all just get exactly 500 years, which means that if you're supposed to live 500 and you die at 20, that's even more tragic than dying at 20 when you usually live until 80 There's a lot of problems with living forever, even though, you know, I agree that we could all use a little more perspective on what we're doing in the now and how it's going to affect further generations. And one would hope that we would be able to engage with that without directly thinking about, well, it only matters to me if I'm there and I can personally appreciate the good weather, you know, who knows. You were saying that people will actually, in Buddhist traditions, watch decaying corpses, essentially? Yeah, it's called the Nine Cemeteries Contemplation. What the monks would do to free themselves of desire and the need for permanence is that they would go to charnel grounds and meditate on the different stages of decomposition. That's helped free them from the desires of the body. Now, there are all different kinds of ways that people get buried. You just described one where people can actually see the different states of decomposition. 
And I know that there's other ones that Tibetans practice, like sky burial and the modern preparation for death, which is like the funeral home. Could you talk about the different ways that cultures move around death in this way? Yeah, there's many ways to bury a corpse. In the West, well, specifically North America, because they don't really do this, even in Europe, is that we embalm the body, which is a chemical process that fixes the proteins and prevents decay for a longer period of time and replaces the blood with chemicals. If a body is embalmed, it would then go in a casket and then in a vault in the ground. So that's quote-unquote traditional burial in modern North America. And that has the issue of really keeping the body from doing what it naturally does, which is decompose and decay and go back into the earth if you choose burial, which the modern system kind of prevents it from doing. A new thing or an old thing brought back would be natural or green burial, which are cemeteries that allow a body just to go straight into the ground, hole in the ground, wrapped in a shroud or a wicker wood coffin, and then just straight to decay in the ground. So that would be what we do in North America. And then all around the world, there are all sorts of different things. You can be exposed. Uh, It's called excarnation, where animals eat the body, including, like you mentioned, Tibetan sky burial, where there is a practitioner who cuts up the corpse and then leaves it for vultures to tear apart and take into the sky, the belief being that you don't need your body anymore and that you're allowing it to feed other animals and to go up into the sky and be of use after your death. Little wheel spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around. Little wheel spin and spin, big wheels turn around and around. Little wheel spin and spin, big wheels turn around and around. What if we reimagined our standard life course? We think of it now in three age-segregated boxes. Age 0 to maybe 25, childhood and education. Age 25 to 65, work, and more and more of it. Raising a family, always crunched for time. Age 65 and beyond, little work, lots of rest. What if we imagined that that third box would start just three years before life expectancy today, say, around 75, not 65? What if we worked less in the middle of life and longer at the end? And what if we looked at aging and even our own mortality square in the eye? So Justin, that wraps up our conversation about death and dying. And, you know, on this show, we don't like to talk about light stuff. We like to dig deep, you know, talk about the big stuff, about the hard stuff, about the stuff that people don't always want to talk about. And I think today on this show, we really dove into the deep end of death and dying. And I've been thinking about this topic for a long time. This has been an episode that's just been in my brain for a really long time, thinking about how much time we have and what we're doing with our time. And the fact that every single person on this planet is going to die, no matter what, you're born and you die. It's part of life. It's part of death. And it is part of what makes us all human. It is what makes us very vulnerable and makes our time here very, very precious. 
talking about this issue is not an easy thing for a lot of people. There's a lot of sadness around death. And when people die, it's a very hard thing because it's, you're losing people from your life, people like your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters, your friends that have been a part of your life for a long, long time. And watching them go is never an easy thing. And it's, it's tough to just have that person who, who's been a part of your every day just disappear. As we were discussing with Stephen, it's this realization that life is a finite thing, that life actually does have limits to it that give it meaning. And North American culture does have such a problem with limits in general. And so that's part of what makes discussing and realizing and living with death such a taboo subject for our society. Even though living and realizing limits is a very difficult thing, I feel that it's learning to understand and embrace those limits that really help you realize who you are as a person, what kind of things that you can contribute to the world, and actually give meaning to your personal relationships. If we had an unlimited amount of time on this planet, then what is it that really binds us to those people that we care about the most? If we had an unlimited ability to go out and live forever, then would our romantic relationships, would our time with our parents or with our kids really mean the same thing to us? I don't know if it would. And so I think that embracing that aspect of our culture of death that we so often ignore or try to find technological fixes for has just the same kinds of ramifications as we embrace it, as do a lot of our ecological problems as well. Anyone who's had an, a relative that's gone through the aging process, who's gotten up into their 90s, their 80s, their 90s, has experienced what it is to age in this country, to kind of fade out of the scene, to be put into a rest home or to be taken care of by a around-the-clock nurse in your home. It's something that's not easy, and it is very much a part of the human living process is getting older. And making your transition into that older state is can, can be a very depressing thing, especially when you're dealing with dementia or some kind of mental deficiency that 50% of the population does deal with. And as we think about our elders in our society, it's, it's important to realize that everyone's going to be there. And if you're not there, it's because you've not made it there. Many other cultures around the world deal with their elderly differently than we do here in, in the Western world. Historically, elders have been venerated in Asian cultures and given a lot of respect. And it's here in the West where buying power is really linked to the kind of respect that you get, where the young and the affluent are treated with that kind of respect that's historically given to the elderly in other countries. This is something that seems to me to be very backwards about our society, that we don't give elderly people in our world the care and respect that they deserve. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. We like to keep mixing it up for our listeners who listen to our show and download religiously week after week. Appreciate all of your time, and thanks again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist. episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with John Michael Greer about his new book, Decline and Fall. 
since Americans believe they don't have an empire, we couldn't have, like, gotten an empire. We didn't rise to an empire. We certainly didn't mug Britain in 1941 and let them know in no uncertain terms that the price of saving their buns from Nazi takeover was that they were going to give us their empire and accept a subordinate role from then on. But that's what happened. It doesn't matter why I was there, or the air is sterile and the sheets sting. Doesn't matter that I was hooked up to this thing that buzzed and beeped every time my heart leaped like a man whose fate tells him God's hands are big enough to catch an airplane, or a world. Doesn't matter that I was curled up like a fist protesting death, or that every breath was either hard labor or hard time, or that I'm either always too hot or too cold. Doesn't matter because my hospital roommate wears Star Wars pajamas. And he's nine years old. His name is Lewis. And I don't have to ask what he's got. The bald head with the skin and bones frame speaks volumes. The Game Boy and the feather pillow booms like they're trying to make him feel at home because he's going to be here a while. I manage a smile the first time I see him and it feels like the biggest lie I've ever told. So I hold my breath, because I'm thinking any minute now he's going to call me on it. I hold my breath because I'm scared of a 57-pound boy hooked up to a machine because he's been watching me and maybe I got him pegged all wrong, like maybe he's bionic or some shit. So I look away. Like I just made eye contact with a gang member who's got a rap sheet the length of a lecture on dumb mistakes politicians have made. I look away like he's going to give me my life back the moment I got something to trade. I damn near pull out my pack and say, cigarette. But my fear subsides in the moment I realize Lewis is all show and tell. He's got everything from a shotgun shell to a crow's foot and he can put them all in context. Like, see this from a shooting range and see this from a weird girl. I watch his hands curl around a cufflink and a tie tack and realize that Every knick-knack is a treasure, and every treasure's got a story, and every time I think I can't handle more, he hits me with another story. He says, see this from my father, see this from my brother, see this from that weird girl, see this from my mother. Took me about two days to figure out that that weird girl is his sister. Took him about two hours today after she left for him to figure out he missed her. They visit every day and stay well past visiting hours because for them that term doesn't apply. But when they do leave, Lewis and I are left alone. And he says the worst part about being sick is that you get all the free ice cream you ask for. And he says the worst part about that is realizing that there's nothing more they can do for you. He says ice cream can't make everything okay. And there's no easy way of asking, and I already know what he's going to say, but maybe he just needs to say it, so I ask him anyway. Are you scared? Lewis doesn't even lower his voice when he says, fuck yeah. I listen to a nine-year-old boy say the word fuck. Like he was a 30-year-old man with a nosebleed being lowered into a shark tank. He's going to write to it. And if it takes this kid a curse word to help him get through it, then I want to teach him to swear like the devil's sitting there taking notes with a pen and a pad. But before I can forget that Lewis is nine years old, he says, Please don't tell my dad. He asks me if I believe in angels. And before I realize I don't have the heart to tell him, I tell him not lately. 
and I just lay there waiting for him to hate me. But he doesn't know how to, so he never does. Lewis loves like a man who lived in a time before God gave religion to men and left it to them to figure out what hate was. He never greets me with silence, only smiles, and a patience I've never seen in someone who knows they're dying and I'm trying so hard not to remind him I'll be out of here in a couple days smoking cigarettes and taking my life for granted. And he'll still be planted in this bed like a flower that refuses to grow. I've been with him for five days and all I really know is Lewis loves to pull feathers out of his pillow. And watch them float to the ground. Almost as if he's the philosopher inside of the scientist ready to say it's gravity that's been getting us down. But the truth is... There's not enough miracles to go around, kid. And there's too many people petitioning God for the winning lotto ticket. And for every answered prayer, there's a cricket with arthritis. And the only reason we can't find answers is because the search party didn't invite us into us right now. The crickets have arthritis. So there's no music. No symphony of nature swelling to crescendos as if we've been halos into melodies that can keep rhythm with the way our hearts beat. So we must meet silence with the same level of noise that the parents of dying nine-year-old boys make when they take liberties and talking with heaven. We must shout until we shatter in our own vibrations, then let our lives echo and grow echo and grow echo and grow distant. Grow distant enough to know that as far as our efforts go, we don't always get a reply. But I swear to whatever God I can find in the time I have left, I'm gonna remember you, kid. I'm gonna tell your stories often as every story you told me, and every time I tell it, I'll say, see? There's bravery in this world. There's 6.5 billion people curled up like fists protesting death. But every breath we breathe has to be given back. A nine-year-old boy taught me that. So hold your breath. The same way you'd hold a pen when writing thank you letters on your skin to every tree that gave you that breath to hold. Then let it go. As if you understand something about getting old and having to give back, let it go like a laugh attack in the middle of really good sex. The black eye will be worth it. Because what is your night worth without a story to tell? And why wield a word like worth if you've got nothing to sell? People drop pennies down a wishing well as to the cost of a desire is equal to that of a thought. But if you've got expectations, expect others have bought your exact same dream for the price of the hard work, hang in, hold on mentality. Like I accept any challenge, so challenge me. Like I brought a knife to this gunfight, but the other night I mugged a mountain, so bring that shit I've had practice. Lewis and I cracked this world wide open, found the prize inside as we never lied to ourselves. Never told ourselves it would be easy or undemanding. So we sing in our own vibration and dare angels to eavesdrop and stop mid-flight to pluck feathers from their wings and write demands that God's hands take the time to catch you. So that even if God doesn't, it wasn't because we didn't try. I don't often believe in angels. But on the day I left, Lewis pulled a feather from his pillow and said, this is for you. I half expected him to say, see, this is the first one I grew.